Please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives in the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall tend, stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations, and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels, for as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. Amen. So last week, we looked at the glorious, the, the beautiful, the incredibly mind-blowing future that awaits every believer, right? The glorious future hope that awaits every child of God. We live in this dark and decaying world, don't we? I mean, it is dark. It, is, it seems like it's getting darker. <laughs> it's decaying. Every one of us are dying. And then we are told that there is this bright, penetrating sun that awaits us. It's as if the sunrise is coming. That will dispel all the darkness. That's what we saw last week. The future is great for believers. And this future is so great, it's almost blinding, isn't it? Um, God doesn't hold back with telling us the incredible promises that await us. But my question today is this, how important would you say is it for us to connect our future hope with the hope giver? Do you think the promise giver matters? Does it matter for our hope? If I promised you that I would give you a million dollars, what would you say? Yeah, right. <laughs> I don't believe you. 
I don't think you can actually do that, and you'd be right. But if Bill Gates were to say, I'll give you a million dollars, well, that's a different story, isn't it? If anyone on earth promised to give you all the blessings of chapter 60, anybody on earth, you would say, yeah, right. That's impossible. But if God promised you to give all those blessings of chapter 60, well, that would be a different story, wouldn't it? That'd be an entirely different story. You see, the promises of God are directly connected to the promise giver. Kind of like to try to take away the, the promise giver from the promise promises. It's kind of like taking a car and taking out the motor. Or taking a person and taking out the heart. Or trying to have a river without the source. You don't have the promises of God without the promise giver. You can only stand secure in the hope that we have to the degree that we are connecting the hope to the promise and the hope giver. And so my plea today, as we look at this passage, my, my plea for you, my, my desire for you, my longing for you, is that you never disconnect the promise giver with the promises. The only way for you to live by faith is to see the promises of God in connection with the one who gives the promises. If you lose sight of the promise giver, you cannot live by faith. We must never disconnect our hope with the hope giver. If we lose sight of the giver of hope, we will put ourselves in eternal peril. This is a serious matter. This is about our joy. This is about the glory of God. This is about our eternal well-being. There is no hope to be found in the gifts without the giver. It is only the source of all the blessings in which we can find eternal safety and security. And so that's what this passage does. This passage connects the glorious hope with the one who brings them about. It anchors our hope in the hope giver, which is something we desperately need this morning. So what are the qualifications for being the great hope giver? Right? There are qualifications to be able to make such great claims of hope. You, you must meet those qualifications. And so the hope giver begins by confirming his qualifications for the task. He confirms that he is qualified to bring you this hope. In verse 1a, he says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. Now, if you look throughout the Old Testament, you will find that... Um, Men were anointed for key offices and specific tasks within Israel, and they were anointed with oil. Whether you're a prophet or whether you're a priest or a king, they were anointed with oil. This anointing, though, is not a normal anointing. <laughs> this anointing is not with oil, but with the Holy Spirit. Men can anoint with oil, but only God can anoint with the Holy Spirit. So what does it mean that he is anointed with the Spirit? What's the significance of that for us? Well, it means that he is both chosen by God and that he is equipped for the task at hand. 
He is chosen by God for this task, and he is equipped for the task that is before him. And so we ask, why is this so important? Why does the messenger here have to begin by identifying himself in this way? This means that your hope is well-grounded. This means that the messenger's message of hope has a basis for it. It's kind of like someone giving you their credentials. They give you their ID card. And they say, yes, I am qualified for this. Whatever the purpose is, you can know that this person is qualified to do the task that is set before him. So this brings us to the question, who is this one? Who is this one that's qualified for the task of bringing us hope? And we don't have to guess. We are not left wondering, have to come up with some guesswork to figure out who this one is. Jesus himself identified himself as the fulfillment of this passage in Luke 4, verse 16 through 21. Jesus has returned from Nazareth, to Nazareth, I should say, where he had grown up and word had spread around about the mighty works that he was doing. And it was a Sabbath day and everyone was assembled in the synagogue, as they usually did. And Jesus stood up and went forward. And the scroll of Isaiah was given to him. And he enrolled this scroll to Isaiah chapter 61. And he read verses 1 through 2. Then he sat down, and it says, every eye was on him. And after he sat down, he said these words, these incredible words. Words that had never been heard in the synagogue before. (laughs) Today these scriptures are fulfilled in your hearing. Imagine a young man who grew up in your town claiming to be the fulfillment of the prophecies. Imagine that. Imagine a young man you had known perhaps your whole life. Growing up saying, I am the one that we have longed for. I am the fulfillment of all the prophecies. And I am fulfilling them right now. All the hopes and expectations of God's people are fulfilled in me. And that's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying nothing less than all the expectations of scriptures are fulfilled in me. So the question is, how will he he accomplish this incredible task of bringing hope? You might say it this way, what are his tools? What what is his instrument for for bringing us hope? How will this chosen, empowered messenger fulfill the hope of God's people? And the answer is rather astonishing, if if you really think about it. It says he's going to do this through preaching, through a good news, through a message. That's what it says here. It says he is going to bring good news. He is going to proclaim. It says proclaim twice there. Amazingly, his tool or instrument to accomplish this hope is through his mouth. He's going to speak a message of good news that will bring hope. 
He will accomplish his mission through preaching. We have heard of the Messiah described this way before, actually. If you look back at Isaiah 11, verse 4, listen to these words. We read this about the Messiah. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. There there is comfort, by the way, in those words. (laughs) He's going to bring salvation for his people. And he's going to do it through his mouth, through the sword of his mouth. We don't think of words as being associated with power, do we? That's why it sounds so strange for us to associate words with power. Because our words have very little power to them. It's the last thing in the world that we would associate with power are words. Because it is the very lack of power that our words have. And so we think of this as being anything... We think of words as being something that could not contribute power with them. It's, it's almost like an incomprehensible thought to think of words as being powerful. And isn't this the very point that God is making about his power here? God is saying that I have power that exceeds all human comprehension. I merely have to speak and I accomplish my powerful work. And just look back at Genesis when God created the world. What did he do? He spoke it into existence. God loves to show his power in the most strangest ways. Kind of like what we're doing here today, isn't it? Through preaching. What an incredible thought that God wants to display his power through preaching, through words. What often makes all of our messages of hope baseless, without substance and only air-filled, is that we have nothing to back up our words with, right? When we say something, it's often no more than a bunch of hot air. Just look at politicians today. But his message is different because he is not only the message giver. Think about this. He is not only the message giver, he is also the message itself. He is giving the message of what he will do and of who he is. That's what makes this message effective. And unlike any other message that's ever been given in the history of the world. His message is about him. It is a message about the work that he would accomplish. And notice that he is God with us. That he is the creator himself. He is the sustainer of the universe. What other message would he give than himself? There is no greater message that could ever be given. This is why Jesus is described as God's final word to us. Because there is no other greater word to be given ever. John 1 verse 1 we read, In the beginning was the word, and the word is with God, and the word was God. Hebrews 1 verse 2 says this, In these last days he has spoken to us, By his son. (laughs) And by the way, this is the way God is working today. God is working through his good news of hope. It's through a message. 
We are the mouthpiece of God as his word is being spoken throughout this world. It is this message that we have. We have no other message but this message. We are still powerfully bringing hope through proclaiming the same message. Is this your message? Is this the summary of what comes out of your mouth? Is this the priority of your words? What other message would we have to give? Are those who are with you, would you leave them with a legacy of this message? If you were never to be around again, would they remember you as someone who gave this message? Who is this message of hope for? The message we are told is for a specific group of people. It is for all who recognize that they are in a desperate condition of hopelessness and are therefore in need of salvation. His message is first of all hope for those who are poor. What does it mean to be poor, right? We've got to ask the question, what does it mean to be poor? And it's not restricted to, nor is it primarily about those who are financially impoverished, right? It rather refers to those who are distressed and in trouble over a lack of righteousness. They are those who are poor spiritually. They are spiritually bankrupt. They have no righteousness to call their own. And by the way, there is no more valuable treasure than righteousness. To be spiritually bankrupt is to have absolutely nothing of value. Because of their condition, they realize they are spiritually outside of God's favor. And so this message is for those who are spiritually impoverished and have no righteousness of their own. This message of hope is also for those who are brokenhearted. What does it mean to have a broken heart? And imagine someone whose heart is so loaded with something. In this case, so loaded with sin that the weight of it just crushes their heart and pulverizes their heart to nothing. It crushes and destroys their heart. Their sin is so heavy that the heart is broken and crushed under its weight. Their hearts do not function as it should because they are crushed, crushed, and they know it. This message is for those who know their hearts are irreparably broken and crushed. The message of hope is for those who are captives and are imprisoned. What does it mean to be imprisoned? Now, now truly, the Israelites would have been um, captives to the Babylonians, right? But here it's talking about a greater bondage. It's a bondage to sin. It's a bondage that cannot break free. We are enslaved naturally to the demands of sin. Such people often think that we are free to do as we please, right? When instead we are mastered by our sin. And the message is for those who feel helplessly bound by our sin and unable to escape it. In other words, you might say they're in the dungeons and the shackles of their sin, controlled and under the power of this great enemy that will destroy them and cares nothing for them. This message of hope 
is finally for those who mourn. What does it mean to mourn? Now, we mourn over many things, don't we? There are many different reasons we might mourn for, but the mourning here is over a lack of righteousness, over a crushed heart, over our imprisoned condition. It is a mourning over our sins and the consequences of it in light of God. It is a mourning over our sins in relationship to what it means to God. The message is for those who feel the despair of their condition in the very depths of their being. So what is the good news of hope that this message offers such people? Such poor, broken, imprisoned, mourning people. What is this message of hope? And this message of hope is good news to the poor. And so we need to ask ourselves, what would be good news to someone who is spiritually impoverished? What would be good news to someone who had no righteousness of their own? Well, nothing but righteousness would be good news for such a person, right? It is not enough to simply eradicate our sin. It's not enough to simply take away our sin. We need a positive righteousness before God. We need an account that is brimming with righteousness. We need positive righteousness on our account. And this is the good news that the Messiah brings for us. That he provides our account with his righteousness. He makes us right in his sight. He gives us a right standing before God. And this is the marvel and the wonder of the gospel, isn't it? People who were impoverished are now in a right standing with God, not because of their own righteousness, but because of an alien righteousness that comes from God himself. It is a righteousness that comes from outside of us. The message will bring us unspeakable riches. All we bring to the table of our salvation is our sin. It's all we bring. And he gives us his righteousness, which is immeasurably worth more than anything else in all this world. If you are the most impoverished person in the worldly terms, but you had the righteousness of Christ, you are missing nothing. You have everything you could ever want or need. The message binds up those who have broken hearts as well. Imagine someone with a broken or crushed heart over their sin. Imagine the oozing, unfixable blob of brokenness and disgustingness of a heart that's been crushed from sin. Irreparable, the condition no physician would ever want to deal with. And now imagine someone coming along who can bind up that broken heart. This would require a miracle-working doctor who is of the greatest sort. This would require a miracle-working doctor who is God himself. Only God could do this. No one else could fix this problem. It is irreparable. And by the way, this is the work of a priest, wasn't it? They were to shepherd God's people. They were to deal with the hearts of the people. But only the Messiah could be the great high priest. Only he could bandage and heal such broken hearts. Through speaking, he binds up those who are irreparably broken. 
What an incredible, powerful God we have. You know, if you look at the parable of the Good Samaritan, it really shows how far away Israel had fallen. The picture there was of the priest, of the people of God. They were supposed to bound up the brokenhearted. They were supposed to help those who had fallen and were sick and beaten up. But instead they failed. And so here we have the truly good Samaritan, the one who truly binds up the brokenhearted. He heals the heart that sin has mangled. The message brings liberty to the captives and opens the prison of those who are bound. What do we need to be released from? What is our greatest captivity? We already said that it is not the Babylonian captivity. It is not anything in this world that we think is binding us and over us. It is our sin that we need to be delivered from. We are captives to Satan. That's what Jesus said in John 8, verse 32 and 34. He said, you are captive to Satan. (laughs) That's your problem. You are captives of sin. Now some, like, like the Israelites, under the Babylonian captivity, would rather like to be under bondage. They liked that lifestyle better. And that is same true with many people today. Many people love the bondage of this world. They would rather be enchained than not be. And they think of it as freedom. But others, like the believing remnant, would not be satisfied in this captivity. God's people want freedom from sin's bondage. Now sometimes it takes a little while for us to get there, right? But we do. Jesus came for those who feel the reality of their need to be freed from bondage. And this is why Jesus came to release us and liberate us from our bondage. He is not merely our healer, he is also our liberator. And Jesus says, it is by knowing this truth that we are set free. He said, and the truth, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. What an incredible thought. No longer we bound by sin, unable to live for righteousness. To be free means that we can live for righteousness. We are free to love God and to love others. And boy, what a battle we are in. But we are no longer bound to sin. Only a greater king who has immeasurably more power than their enemy could accomplish such an incredible feat. And you've got to imagine a king walking into the prisons and just opening the doors and saying, you're free, <laughs> you're free. That is power that is incomprehensible. This requires a greater king than those who hold his people captive. And that's the king that we have. The message is proclamation of the arrival of the year of the Lord's favor. The year of the Lord's favor is almost certainly foreshadowed by what was called the year of jubilee that was prescribed by God in the law of Moses. Every 50 years there was a proclamation that would be made throughout the land. They would blow the horn and everybody would know that it was time for the release of the servants for the restoration of the property that was sold, for the canceling of debts, and it would be trumpeted throughout the land. And Jesus was proclaiming the greater liberty, the greater jubilee, the greater era of grace that the year of jubilee was pointing towards. 
You know, built into the very fabric of the Jewish society was a foreshadowing of the greater jubilee that the Christ would bring. Isn't that amazing when you think about it? The way God was working in the Old Testament, foreshadowing the greater that was going to come. The Messiah brings that liberation to its fullest realization through the gospel. He would declare the greater canceling of debts, the greater release of servants. Sin has been canceled. The prisoner can be set free. God's hearts, the hearts of men that were bound, are now fixed. In other words, he was declaring that today is the day of salvation. Listen to what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2. See, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. In a sense, this day had already begun as Jesus announced this. But in another sense, it wouldn't be fully inaugurated until his death and his resurrection. Throughout this period of good news, the gospel is to be preached. It's to be preached everywhere. It's to be sown liberally everywhere we go. This message of the year of Jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor. It is to be preached in those who repent and believe are saved and liberated. The prisoners are released and hearts are bound that were bound are finally fixed. And this is the day that we are in today, and it will continue to be this day of salvation until Christ comes again. What a privilege and responsibility we have of living in this great era. Now, notice this. In what really appears to be a surprising contradiction, he goes on to, t- to say that his message is the proclamation of the day of vengeance of our God. And this message doesn't seem to fit with the rest of the message, does it? It seems to contradict itself. It seems to be opposite of everything else. It doesn't seem like it belongs here. But what is even more surprising is Jesus, in Luke 4, verse 16 through 18, when he begins reading this passage, he stops right before this statement. And we have to ask the question, why in the world does he do that? Why does he read and then stop right there and sit down? You see, Jesus is stopping, I believe, right here, because he's saying that this day has not yet come. (laughs) It is coming. The day of vengeance is coming. Be warned. It is coming. (laughs) It cannot be stopped, but that day is not here yet. Today is the day of salvation, and the day of vengeance is certainly going to come. You can be sure of that. When Christ Christ returns, the year of favor will be over and the day of vengeance will begin. You can see this in the book of Revelation, where we are told that he will slay the wicked with a sword that comes out of his mouth. In Revelation 19, verse 11 through 16. But I want you to understand that this message of the day of vengeance is not at all contrary to the message of comfort in any way whatsoever. There's hardly any greater comfort than for those who have been persecuted and defeated and have been under the the reign and rule of wickedness than to know that one day wickedness will be crushed. The oppression will one day get what it deserves and its power will be broken. Salvation for God's people always includes judgment of their enemies. It is also appropriate for the messengers of the gospel 
to warn of the coming wrath so that people will flee to the comfort of God's grace. So yes, this is entirely appropriate. And we must understand that things will not continue as they have been forever. One day God will bring everything as we know it to a sudden end. This means that today and today only that we know for sure, and as long as it is today, is the day of opportunity. The opportunity is not to be taken lightly. A terrible judgment awaits all who do not take God's word and his message seriously. Turn to Christ while it is today before it is too late. Repent and believe in the good news of the gospel and be saved from this wicked generation. The message is a message of comfort to all who mourn. And that's what it says in verse 3. We know that there are many reasons, as we mentioned, that we might mourn. But here is true comfort. There is infinitely greater comfort that can only come from being released from condemnation that comes through this message of the gospel. Remember what it says in Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No greater comfort can ever be found than this comfort that we find here. There's no greater dilemma, no greater problem, no greater, no greater, uh, no greater issue <laughs> that we could ever have than our sin. And Jesus says, comfort for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no con condemnation for those who are in me. The comfort is illustrated and expanded with picture of a headdress instead of ashes, oil of gladness instead of mourning, garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. So there's this one side of a mourner who is crushed and defeated. And then on the other side, this picture is replaced by a picture of a party goer with a beautiful headdress, costly oil, and wearing a garment that compels praise. Someone who's rejoicing and delighting and praising. That's what the message of the gospel does. That is the message of comfort that Jesus brings. The gospel alone can do this. It alone can transform us from this ugly, destructive selfishness into reflecting the very beauty of God himself. We need this transformation inwardly and outwardly. And this gladness and joy and love are the marks of the work of God on his people. Now if you looked at Jesus... In his life, you would find that he was obsessed with this message of hope. It consumed his life from beginning to end. Listen to John 18, 37. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. He was obsessed with this. He was obsessed with this message. And is it surprising that it was so? Is it surprising to you that he was obsessed with this message? Wouldn't it be surprising to hear that Jesus was obsessed with any lesser thing? Imagine if Jesus was obsessed with having the perfect retirement plan, or having the nicest yard in the neighborhood, or the greatest house, or car, <laughs> or maybe horse, you might say. It merely confirms who he was and the message he had by his obsession with it. 
For Jesus to be obsessed with this message simply means he was obsessed with the greatest of all messages. And he lived for the greatest of all purposes. It means he lived life rightly. Any other pursuit would be to live a vain vain life and to live for a lesser purpose. Did you know that the same message that Jesus gave is the same message that we have today? John 20, verse 21, Jesus said, As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. It is your message, church. This is the same message that we have. How can we possibly be obsessed with anything else with our lives? Ask yourselves, what greater message is there than the message of salvation in Christ Jesus? The gospel message alone can bring you into favor with God. The gospel message triumphs over every enemy that stands against us. It defeats sin, it conquers death, it crushes Satan. The gospel leaves us with nothing to fear ever. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So the question is, how are you possibly to live faithfully with this obsession in our lives? How can we not be distracted as Jesus was not distracted? How do we do this? You know, I think of Acts 13, 36. Listen to David's life. David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation. What incredible words. Isn't this what you want to be said of you? That you serve the purpose of God in your generation. What incredible words. And he wasn't perfect, was he? But he was a faithful man. Living for that supreme purpose. So how can you possibly remain faithful and not get distracted from this message? Well, the answer is very simple. If you are to be faithful, church, you must always connect your hope to the messenger who gives us our hope. We must never disconnect our hope from the hope giver. The moment we disconnect our hope from Christ, our hope will begin to fade away. All the false hopes of this world will begin to look greater and better and more impressive. We will become obsessed with lesser things. This means if you are distracted with lesser things right now, the problem is chiefly, without a doubt, that you have lost sight of Christ. You need to see the promise giver today again, afresh with eyes of faith. And then you need to marvel, marvel once again in the promises of God. But you need to look again at Christ and don't look away Fix your eyes on things above. Look to Christ and stare at Christ and never turn your gaze away from Him. And the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Our time in this world is very short. We all need to remember that today is the day of salvation. You must repent and believe and your message of your life must be repent and believe. From the other side, I can imagine with clarity us looking back and saying, every other purpose was so irrational. (laughs) Everything else was irrational. We'll be consumed with this thought of the greatness of our God. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done 
for Christ will last. Let's pray. Dear Father, we praise you today. We praise you for bringing to us a gospel message that is powerful to save. Lord, our victory is in Christ Jesus. And Lord, you have conquered every enemy. You have given us your righteousness. Lord, you have brought to us a complete salvation. But God, we don't marvel merely in what you have accomplished. We marvel supremely in the one who has accomplished it for us. Lord, we rejoice in what you have done for us today. We thank you for being such a great Savior. Lord, I pray that we would never get over you. I pray that your people today and for the rest of our lives would sing your praises. I pray that we would never be ashamed to sing of you in public. I pray that we would never be ashamed to proclaim your great gospel to those we come across. I pray that we would speak of it to fellow believers. I pray that we would speak of it to non-believers. And not merely because there is a real judgment that's coming, but because you deserve to be praised. Lord, I pray that our lives would be filled and overflowing with praise to you. Because that is what you deserve. In Jesus' name, amen.